Acts chapter 18. We will begin reading in verse number 18. As we see, Paul concludes his, uh, his second missionary journey. This time, of course, the first one was with Barnabas. The second one was with, uh, was with Silas. And on, the, on that missionary journey um, is where we read about the, uh, what happened in Philippi and the Philippian jailer. And of course, he meets Timothy. And now he's got a little, an entourage, which, uh, listen, I don't think Paul was one who, you know, we were, who we were talking last night about, uh, we were talking about, anyway, an entourage of preacher, a preacher that came in with his entourage in a special meeting and, you know, and, and had his, you know, uh, his guys come in and do their thing. And that's not what Paul was like at all. He had, he called these men fellow workers, Right, he viewed them. He viewed them uh, as peers, and uh, and so uh, he has a nice little assembly of people that are are helping him in the ministry. And and I think a lot of this you don't see in the Book of Acts. To be honest with you, uh, it's just not recorded uh, in detail for us. But what is what is evident is these churches in Asia, these churches in Achaia, uh, in Macedonia, they did not exist. Just they didn't just like go on their own is they had they had faithful people who were leading them, uh, both people that Paul knew and people within the congregation, uh, men with uh, spiritual maturity that led these uh, that led these churches. So um, we don't hear a lot about them, but today we want to look at one man in particular who would become a a fellow helper of Paul, a fellow worker, and uh, that's the man by the name of Apollos. So let's look at verse number 18 of Acts 18 and read down to verse number 28. The Bible says, And after this, ter- after this tarried there yet, after Paul... Uh, let me start over here. Let me start over here. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centria, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not. But bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and, and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And thus ends the second missionary journey of Paul. Notice where did it, where did it end? It ended exactly where it began, in Antioch, which is where the first missionary journey started and, and ended. Now the second missionary journey has started here and has ended here. Because this is Paul's church. He is a part of this church, right? And so he's coming back to this church. Now he starts in verse 23 on his third missionary journey. Not a lot is said about this. We j- it just jumps right into uh, to Ephesus in chapter 19. But uh, Paul is going all throughout. No time is given. It's just this is what you call the gap principle in the Bible. That one, in one brief statement... A huge span of time is covered. 
Paul's going all throughout Asia in order. He's going from church to church, city to city where he had been before, strengthening the churches. This is a time when he's writing letters to the churches, many of which occur in our, uh, are found in our New Testament. And then we get down to verse number 24, and this is actually verses 24 to verse 28 is background information. Background information to introduce us to a very important man at this time, which is the man Apollos. Verse 24 says this, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the, the church meeting together here this morning. Thank you for the, the music we've been able to hear and sing. Thank you for those that, that prepared songs, the choir and my family, and the blessings those are to us. Lord, thank you that we, we have a song to sing we have a, a gospel, we have a Savior that, uh, about which we can sing. And it's worthy of our voice. And Lord, as we look at your word, this, is this time here as we examine this man Apollos and what you did in his life, Lord, these, this passage is worthy of our attention. It's worthy of our time and our focus and our heart's attention. And so, Lord, I ask you that your spirit would... Uh, Walk among us and speak to us and teach us. And Lord, lead me to say the right things to your people in the right spirit. And I pray that we would learn these lessons, that we would grow closer to you through them. So we commit this time to you. We ask for your help and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Apollos was born in Alexandria, which is, of course, in Egypt. It was, uh, it was the second largest city in uh, in the Roman Empire. This is a major city, and about a third of the population of Alexandria was Jewish. Was Jewish. So we're talking 700,000 people. And you think, well, that's, that's not very many. This, in this time, it was a whole lot of people, a large city. It had a large library and known, it was known for its learning. So it's no, it's no surprise that Apollos, as a Jew, uh, born there is an eloquent man, no, no doubt a man who was uh, learned like Paul himself was, like Paul himself was. So um, he came to Ephesus, and of course we know that from uh, the previous, our previous study with Aquila and Priscilla that, uh, that Aquila and Priscilla are now residing in Ephesus, but Paul has gone back to Antioch. He'll be back to Ephesus in chapter 19. Verse 25 says of, of uh, Apollos, This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism 
of John, which is, which is, that's an interesting point. There were people in the New Testament time, unlike our time, there were people in the New Testament time that were aware and had heard and had been instructed about John the Baptist, but had not yet learned of Christ. Now, you've got to remember that in our study, we are reading about Paul, and Paul is one of the, the, the pioneer missionaries. Now, Paul has not yet been to Ephesus. Now, he's been all throughout. You remember that verse in, in Acts where we read that he essayed to go into Bithynia, and he tried to go into to Asia, but the Spirit forbid him, and instead he got the Macedonian call to cross the Aegean and to go into what is now Greece. Remember that? And he went into Macedonia, where was Thessalonica and Berea, and he came down into, what, into Corinth, and that's where we were last Sunday. Well, the place where Paul did not go was Ephesus. That was the, the capital city of the province of Asia, where, where the Spirit forbid him from going. But now there's, a, there's apparently a church in Ephesus, and, uh, and there's uh, now Aquila and Priscilla are there. The gospel is just now spreading, and Paul's kind of the tip of the spear. And so wherever, uh, wherever that Apollos has been, the gospel has not yet gotten to him all the way. This is, this is kind of the state of history, the church history at this point. The, uh, the gospel is just now getting to some of these places. And so Apollos has not heard about Christ. Now, apparently there were people that had gone out and were, uh, that were spreading the knowledge of John the Baptist. Now, you got to remember, John the Baptist was an important figure in the history of Scripture. He was an important figure in the ministry of Christ. He was the forerunner that was preparing the hearts of the people of Israel by repentance for the Lord to come. And he was the one who initially, who was the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He's the one who said uh, that there cometh one after me, the, shoot, the, the uh, latchet of his shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. He shall baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. You remember these things about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was the, pre, the forerunner of Christ. Now, we know that Apollos knew about John. And we'll, look at, we'll examine this a little bit more about what he knew uh, about Christ up to this point. But what is interesting to note is that Apollos only had this knowledge. This was the extent of his knowledge. He had incomplete knowledge. That's why I want us to look, look this morning at the character of Apollos and see how it relates to us. Because... He was a man who had knowledge. In fact, he was mighty in the Scriptures. He knew the Bible. The Bible at this time was the Old Testament. He knew the Bible. He was well-spoken. The Bible says he's eloquent. He was bold. In verse 25, he was instructed in the way of the Lord. Fervent in spirit. We'll say something about that in a minute. He, and he was bold enough to teach what he knew to those. Because remember... Up, up to this point, everything about Christ is, is unknown to him. So that means that whatever Apollos is teaching, he is teaching, he is teaching part of the whole truth, right? So whatever he's teaching about John is true. Whatever, whatever he's relaying that John had taught, that's all true. And he is bold enough to take the knowledge that he has and to teach other people. 
Now, the reality is, for us, like Apollos, every one of us is a person who has, some, in some measure, incomplete knowledge. Now, unlike Apollos, we know the gospel, we know about Christ, and we know about salvation by grace, and, and, uh, and all of these things that Apollos did not know, but we also have incomplete knowledge in some area of our life or another. None of us has gotten to a point where we have arrived. No matter how long we have been saved, no matter if we've been to Bible college, no matter if we've been to seminary, no matter if we have doctorates. And listen, I know what I'm saying. Everybody's always said before. Yeah, I know. Nobody's arrived. But we need to let that sink down into our hearts that we really haven't arrived. That there are things in our lives, there's knowledge about the Lord and our relationship to the Lord that we don't yet know. We have incomplete knowledge. But the question is this. The question is not whether we have arrived in our knowledge. That's not the question. That's not the issue. The issue is what have we done with the knowledge that we have? That's the question. Because though Apollos had incomplete knowledge, and there was a lot of important, necessary things that he did not yet know, he was responsible to God for the knowledge that he did have. And we likewise are responsible to God for the knowledge that we do have. You know, the Bible says that the Lord lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That's, that's a certain amount of knowledge. You know, you might... You, you, there, you know, there are people in the world, probably no one here, I don't imagine, but there are, there are people in the world who come into the world without any knowledge of the Scripture at all. And that's what our missions conference is all about, right? Getting the gospel to people who have never heard it, don't have the chance to hear it. But you know, even those people are responsible for what knowledge they have, be it little or be it much. We are all responsible for, we might say, the light that God has given to us. And again, all of us have some light, but not all the light. All of us have some knowledge, but not all knowledge. Now, the second thing I want you to see about Apollos is this. He had incomplete knowledge. And the second thing is this. Notice what it says. He was eloquent, mighty in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, and taught diligently the things of the Lord. And you get to the last part of verse 25, And it says, knowing only the baptism of John. So even though he had incomplete knowledge, he acted on the knowledge that he did have. Apollos acted on the knowledge that he did have. So again, I repeat, the question is not whether we have knowledge. Everyone in here, everyone in here, including myself, has knowledge that has outpaced our action. We have more knowledge than we have put into practice in our walk with the Lord, in our service to God, in our devotion to God. Every one of us. Now the issue is that little gap, or big gap as the case might be, between what we know and what we practice. That's that gap. 
You see, with Apollos, you, you see, with Apollos, his knowledge was just here. And we know John, John the Baptist, his ministry, as important as it was, as he was the, the last prophet, the forerunner to Christ, right? He was all these things. He was an important person. But, but comparatively, the gospel's far greater, right? The knowledge of the gospel it just opens up into a, a whole world of, of new information and, and, and a new relationship to God and, and uh, eternal life and forgiveness of sins and all of these things that he had no idea about whatsoever. He only knew this little sliver. But let me tell you something about Apollos. He had a sliver of knowledge. But if, if for instance, if our knowledge is here and our practice of that knowledge is here, that gap, Apollos' knowledge was like this, but his practice was right here. He was taking that which he knew and was doing something with it, acting on it, living it out. There wasn't this huge gap between what he knew and what he was doing. Now, this touches on an important principle that I want to show you in in Mark chapter 4. Look at Mark chapter 4 if you would. Mark chapter 4, now I'm going to summarize verse 10 through verse 20. This is the parable of the sower. Remember, there are four, Mark 4, verse 10, there are, there, in the parable of the sower, there are four different uh, examples or, or instances given. You could say four different uh, types of ground where the sower who scatters the seed and it falls upon four different types of ground. Falls by the wayside. It falls on the uh, the. Let me get my order right here. The wayside, stony ground, uh, among thorns. Number three, and number four is good ground. Right. What I want you to see is in the first example. Look at verse fifteen by uh, uh, just as an example of that. And these are they that these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately. Now notice this, and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. You see that. So the the word being that. Remember, this is the knowledge of the Word of God, right? If, if, we, if we interpret this parable, this is the knowledge of the Word of God. So the Word gets to a person. And, and a lot of times, you know, we talk about the mission conference and stuff. In many cases, the Word never even arrives, okay? So you have to have a sower to begin. Now, I know in the big picture, the sower is Christ. But on a, on a local level, the sower is, might be the missionary or the evangelist, as the, as the case might be. So you have to have a sower, but let's assume someone is there, someone is scattering the seed, making the word of God known. Now, now in the first, in the first case, the, the seed falls on, the ground, on the, the ground by the wayside. And the devil snatches the word away. Now, let me, what was, in other words, what was once there and had the potential to bear fruit and do good is now gone. It was there. Now it's gone. Is there going to be any fruit? No. Nothing's going to come of it. Now, we, set, we might blame it on the devil. That's true. But the devil has a lot of schemes and strategies 
It, it doesn't necessarily have to be him personally. It could be anything that he concocted. It could be a, it could be a job. It could be family that takes the word away from someone. It could be a number of things. It could be a temptation for a particular sin. It could be a relationship that's out of the will of God. It could be, for all we know, it could be debt. I mean, I could go on and on. But the bottom line is, is that it takes the word away. What was once there is no longer. Satan's strategy, his attack worked to take the word away. Now, go down to verse 21. And he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? It's referring to the purpose of a candle, a lamp, right? The purpose is to shed light. And if it's covered, it's not fulfilling its purpose. Verse 22, For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, that it should, that, uh, but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. That's a key, key, key phrase there, verse 23. Look at verse 24. He, say, he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. It shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. You see that? Unto you that hear shall more be given. Now understand, verse number 23, look at verse 23 if you would. It says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So that tells us that not everybody whose ear, who, who has ears through which sound waves travel are actually hearing. We might say listening, receiving, and acting upon these things. Jesus said there are people that are hearing it, but they're not hearing it. They're hearing it, but there's, it's having no effect. It's like the word is there, but then it's taken away and there's no fruit, right? So when he says, and unto you, verse 24, unto you that hear shall more be given. So this hearing is not just the, the, the ears functioning. This is talking about receiving the word that you hear and then applying it, acting upon it, right? The Lord says, if you receive the word that you have been given and you act upon it, you apply it, and you do it, he will give you more. Okay? This is, this is nothing more than a, maybe you might say an early version of what we call Christian growth. Is this not what Christian growth is? You take what God tells you and teaches you. You, if it's, listen now, if it stops there, you will not grow. You must take it and apply it. Do it. Because if you don't do it, there's no growth. Nothing has changed. Your life is the same. But you did hear it. But then it's been taken away. Right? Read the next verse. And this is where it gets a little more serious. For he that hath... Now remember, I know this is a little bit of a mysterious language here, but remember it in the context, okay? For he that hath, to him shall be given. 
So you have the word, you have received it, you have heard it, and then you have done it. You have grown. The Lord says, I'm going to give you more. Verse number 25 continues, And he that hath not from him shall be taken even that which he hath. This has nothing to do with the amount of money in your bank. has nothing to do with your material possessions. This is talking about the Word. So here's what the Bible is saying here, what the Lord is saying. You get the Word, you receive it, you act upon it and do it, the Lord will give you more Word, help you to grow. But if you receive the Word and you hear it with your ears, but you don't hear it in the way that you act upon it and do it, it will be taken. Well, that's kind of frightening. Look at James chapter 1, if you would. James chapter 1. Verse 21. James 1, verse 21 says this. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. See that? Which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Listen. I want to say this in the right spirit, but I, but I have to say it. If you and I come to church to hear the word, but we don't do it, the only person we're deceiving is ourself. We are not growing. If you think, if I think, if we think we are growing because we listen, you're wrong. You're not growing. You're stagnant. The Lord requires His Word to be, to be put into practice, responded to, not just heard. Verse 23. For if any man be a, any be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. That's a mirror. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now let me ask you a question. So I'm, I come in here, I'm looking in the mirror. The mirror is the Word, right? It's, it reflects our true state, right? And listen, I know sometimes people, talk, people complain about preaching being negative. Preachers, I mean, I know there's probably some, but, but I, don't, I don't seek out to be, I don't try to be negative. Right? That's not what nobody tries to be negative just to, to be a jerk about things. But the Word of God is a mirror. And when you hold it up to yourself, you're going to see yourself as you truly are. And so will I. It might mean that you hold it up to yourself and you see a person who is without God, lost, bound in sin 
on the road to hell. The Lord is only revealing what we are, the Word of God. That makes people uncomfortable sometimes. And sometimes, even as a believer, we hold the mirror of God's Word up to ourselves and we see deficiencies, blemishes in ourselves, right? How many of you can relate to this? You see blemishes and deficiencies in yourself. That's not the Word of God's fault. The Lord's not changing it for you or for me. So when you see that, notice... Notice in the context here, so you look at it and you see the manner of man you are. That's what the verse says, right? But you do nothing about it. There is no response to what you see. You walk away, and what does the verse say? Somebody help me. What does the verse say in verse number 24? What does it say? You forget. What does that mean? That means you saw it, You walked away and now you don't remember what you had seen. In other words, something has been taken from you. The knowledge of what you were in the sight of the Lord and the reflection of God's word has actually gone away. You've lost something. Why? Because you didn't do it. You didn't respond. You know, there are many people that have heard the gospel They've heard it, but they have not yet to this moment responded. And there is no guarantee. Listen, we are saved at God's pleasure. We don't come, as we say in the Marine Corps, we don't don't come ditty bopping to God and get saved just any old time we choose. It's not like that. The Lord, listen, the salvation experience is God's prerogative. In other words, He is actively involved. And when He is calling and when He is wooing and drawing and working in us, we must respond because He is under no obligation to extend that. And there are times when the Lord shuts the door and that's it. He does, that, that is a scriptural principle. So when someone is, it, when someone is aware of where they stand with God, that they're without God and, and, and they think about that and that, that concerns them and yet they do nothing, there's no response, that's a dangerous place to be in. But for those that know the Lord, you think about Apollos, he had knowledge and he acted on knowledge even though his knowledge was little. Sometimes those of us who have knowledge, we smugly look down on people like Apollos because we know that we have greater knowledge than they have. And we think because we have knowledge that we're, in a be- we're, we're, we're doing better than they are doing. But that would be wrong. Here's why. Because though Apollos had a little bit of knowledge... He was doing much more with his little bit of knowledge than we are doing with our great big storehouse of knowledge. It's not about knowing, it's about doing. please, Please understand the spirit in which I say this. We have a condition in which We are not responding to God's Word. We're hearing it and we are not being moved. 
we are not doing what he says. We're hearing it, we're assenting, but we're not doing it. This is not a good condition to be in. Number three, Apollos, going back to Acts, if you would look at that real quick, Acts 18. Apollos was fervent with the knowledge that he did have. So even though Apollos had a little bit of knowledge, he was fervent with that knowledge. Now, now, now listen to this. Think about what the knowledge Apollos had. He knew about John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist teach? He taught that, that the, the, the Savior was coming. He taught that he prepared the hearts of the people with baptism. He said the Savior is imminent. That's basically what he's saying. The Savior's, the, the King's coming is imminent. And that's, this is what Apollos believed and held, right? Up to this point, this is all he knew. The Savior's coming is imminent. John taught us that we should repent, prepare ourselves, and as a sign of that repentance, be baptized, right? Make the rough places plain in preparation for the Lord. He, he, he knew that John the Baptist taught that when the Savior and the King would come, he would baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So he knew about the Spirit of God a little bit. He knew about judgment. Now think about Okay, I mean, I mean that's, that's significant. But think about what he didn't know. He knew nothing of Christ's coming. He didn't know anything about the cross. Not one word. He didn't know anything about the resurrection. He didn't know anything about Jesus' healing miracles, his compassion. He didn't know a word of Jesus' teaching. Nothing we've just read, none of it. He didn't know anything of that. He didn't know of Jesus' promised return. He didn't know of the Great Commission. He didn't know that Jesus would be the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. He only knew that introductory material in, you know, Matthew chapter 3 about John the Baptist. He, he, he did not know a whole lot of things. Now think about this. All of these truths that he did not know are truths that are designed. The Lord has designed them to stir us up. They're designed, by knowledge of those truths, are designed to affect the way we live. What we do, our devotion to God, our service to God, our worship of God. He did not have any of that information. And yet, look how fervent he is over and over. He's fervent, diligent. He's, he's uh, uh, convincing the Jews and that publicly. He had none of that knowledge and yet he was still fervent. And we have the knowledge. And listen, there is like apathy that is settled over, not just, not, not just Greenville, but it's all over our country. It's all over Western Christianity. It's just, it's this sleepiness that's just settled over us and it trickles into every church, including this church. This apathetic, this unresponsiveness to the Word of God. It settles into us and it, it handicaps and, and, and sucks our energy away and it makes it so we, we just, we cannot find the strength to do anything for the Lord. Sacrifice is off the table. the very truths that are supposed to motivate us and stir us, they hit us and they 
There's no stirring. We're, we're, we're numb to them. Listen, Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Apollos didn't know this. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of Christ, uh, Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For ye are bought with a price. That's the gospel. Therefore, Upon that basis, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, the reason we should glorify God in our body and our spirit is because we are bought. Apollos didn't know that. We do, but do we glorify God in our body and in our spirit? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. Listen to this. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, Apollos didn't know that, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, Apollos didn't know that, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The reason we live for God is because of what Christ did for us, period. And listen, any question of service or devotion or, 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 or any good work we do in the sight of God, it's done in the context of what Christ did. That's why we do it. He loved us first. Titus 2, verses 11 and 14, through 14 says this, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Paulus didn't know that teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So that means we put away sin because the grace of God has been given to us. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live in the, the rest of his time in the, the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Why do you and I, why should we, why should we live to the will of God? Give ourselves wholly to the will of God. There is one reason. It's because the Savior Amen. bled and died for us. You see, we have all of this knowledge, and I could go on and on and on and on and on about it, and yet it seems it doesn't affect this 21st century church. They're not bothered. They're not stirred. These grand truths should transform us and motivate us. But I want to ask you, when you hear these things, when you see the songs, and I'm talking to Adam Wood as well, when I hear these songs about Christ and I hear the gospel, am I stirred in my heart? Nobody knows but me and God. Am I stirred? Am I moved? 
Romans 12 verse 11 says this, that we're not to be slothful in business, but to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That's the inner man. That's the inner man, serving the Lord. Now look at Revelation chapter 3. This will be the last verse we look at this morning. We're told that the word fervent, the Bible says Apollos was fervent in spirit. Uh, Romans 12, 11 says, uses the same word, says, Apollo, uh, says that we should be fervent in spirit. So what the characteristic that Apollos had, the Lord says, we should have that. And the word fervent, they tell us, is a common word that refers to something glowing with heat or boiling, okay? Listen to this. Revelation 3, verse 15, the Bible says this. To the church at Laodicea, the Lord says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, I want, that means I want, I would thou work cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Apathy is described in these verses. You know, certainly we're not opposed to the Lord cold. But that's, the question is, but are we boiling? Are we glowing? Am I glowing? Does the truth of God stir you? All of these things Apollos had no idea about, yet he was fervent. And we have huge amounts of a library, a world of truth in the gospel. And it's hard for us, it's hard for us, and I'm including me, it's hard for us to do anything. Sacrifice it all. Lift, lift a hand, lift a finger. Get up and read our Bible, pray, give out a tract, knock on a door, hand out tracts downtown, take a meal to somebody, visit somebody in the hospital. We can't do it, it's, it's, it's just impossible. No energy, no strength. And so lastly, in Acts 18, we see that Aquila and Priscilla take Apollos and they expound the way of God more perfectly to him. And he's, he's, he learns the full truth. But here's the thing. So he gets more knowledge. But here's what I want you to see. He gets more knowledge. And what, is, what often happens is, as someone gets more knowledge, they start to rest on knowledge, even though there's no application of the knowledge. And that's a tendency for every one of us. Well, I know, I, I've learned all, I know all that. I mean, how many people, I know I personally have met many, many people who do not love God, who do not serve God. But they brag all day long about how they, they know all that. Everything you try to tell, oh, they know all that. But it's done no good. It's done no good. It's just mere knowledge. Listen now, and I'm closing. The increase in knowledge, Apollos got knowledge and it did not affect his fervency, his service. It did not affect that. He took the knowledge, the greater knowledge, and applied it. 
But if we don't do that, you know what happens? We get greater knowledge and more knowledge, and we know that. We've heard all this before. The knowledge that we have actually becomes a liability because we are going to give an account for what we know and that for which we've done nothing with that. The Lord has given us things that we haven't responded to and through apathy, we haven't answered the knowledge that God has given us. Let's pray together.